Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to Pangolin, the conservation podcast. The show dedicated to exploring and amplifying the world's underappreciated conservation stories. The stories that inspire me and I hope will inspire you too. I'm your host Jack Baker and thank you for joining me for this, the first episode of season four. <laughs> to celebrate this brand new season, I am joined by the fantastic Dr. Arno Debier to discuss the incredible anteater. We discuss the importance of anteaters, the threats that they face out in the wild, and how his organization is helping to secure a future for these amazing animals. It doesn't stop there though, as we also take some time to chat about his work on the giant armadillo conservation project. And we discuss how numerous species are protected by the somewhat strange combination of firefighters, apps, and honey. It may sound odd, I have to admit, but it works. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's get started. Welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Dr. Arno Debye, who runs the Giant Armadillo Conservation Project and the Anteaters and Highways Project. And he's here to tell us today about the Anteaters and Highways Project. So thank you very much for joining me once again, Arno. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jack. Thank you. Um, it's great to have you back on the show. Uh, for anyone who hasn't listened previously, we spoke about this time last year all about the Giant Armadillo Project. So if anyone's interested in that before they come on to this part of the conversation, you can go back and listen to that. But today we're going to be talking all about anteaters. Um, but since it's been a year, before we get on to all of that sort of conversation, I wondered, could you just reintroduce yourself to the listeners in case they kind of jog their memory? Who are you? And, and tell them a little bit about yourself. So well, so hello to everybody who's listening. My name is uh, Arnaud Debier. Um, I'm actually French, but I have been living and working in Brazil for the past 20 years. And for the past 11 years, I've been, uh, 11 years ago, I started and founded the Giant Armadillo Conservation Program, which was basically just me putting out some camera traps to learn about the species. And that kind of blew up uh, into a, a large program. And now we work with armadillos in, in three different biomes. Um, founded an NGO, started this project, another project called Anteaters and Highways. And now from just one person, it's now uh, we have to about 20 full-time staff working on these conservation projects. And, uh, you know, about 10 students, uh, 35 collaborators and about 50 different partners. So it really became something much, much bigger beyond, beyond um, you know, what I really started with. And, and so, yeah. So, so it's been quite an adventure. The past 10 years have been pretty intense. Mm -hmm. And it's, yes, it's a, a brilliant, brilliant kind of story of kind of, it seemed to be kind of you starting with a camera all the way up to now doing all sorts of stuff. It's a fantastic, fantastic journey. And yes, something we touched on a lot in the last interview. So as I say, if you want to learn more about that and kind of how you got to this point, uh, listeners can go back and listen to that. And yes, today we're focusing on the latter of the two projects you mentioned, the the kind of giant armadillo, uh, nope, the giant anteater project. I'm going to do that so many times. Too many eight. Well, I, I do that too. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> giant armadillo, anteater project. Uh -huh. <laughs> the anteaters and highways project. Um, so to get us started, I wondered, we've kind of met you. Could you introduce us to the anteater? What is it? Tell us a little bit about it. Well, I think the anteater is, is, is really an iconic species for South America. Mm -hmm. um, they occur in Central and South America. But I think there's nothing quite like them anywhere else in the world. They're, they're quite big. They can reach from tip of nose to tip of the tail uh, uh, two meters. And they weigh about 30 to 40 kilograms. So they're a large animal. And they have an absolutely unique anatomy. And which consists of a really long tubular nose and this big shaggy tail. And they also walk kind of on their knuckles like a big silverback gorilla. And, you know, I don't think there's so nothing really quite looks like them. And 
And they're, they're really just such a unique species. Anteaters, as their name says, you know, mostly feed in, in, on ants and termites. In uh, the, the studies we've done show that it's actually mostly ants. Um, well, depending on the biome, the Cerrado more termites, Pantanal more ants. Um, and so they're long snout. They have this really long, sticky, sticky uh, tongue. They use their powerful claws to dig up uh, uh, ant nests and termite mounds, and they just prod their nose. They stick their tubular nose into the, the nest, and then their tongue kind of pulls it out. And so they're, they're very, a really, really unique species and full of, you know, interesting, um, I- interesting facts. Mothers carry their pups on their backs. They have, you know, low body temperature. So, um, so low, low, body, low metabolism. So very impacted by, by temperature. You know, their activity really depends on temperature. So when it's really cold, um, they, they, they're they mostly diurnal. When it's really hot, they're mostly nocturnal. I mean, there's so much just to say about this species. They're absolutely, they're absolutely fascinating. I, and I think the word that comes to mind when you see a giant anteater, well, that's, for me, it's always this impression of what a majestic species. I mean, they're, they're just, um, you, 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 because they're so different looking, right? And this long shaggy tail and, and just the way they walk. Um, they're, they're a very, very, very impressive species. Once again, I know that you are based in um, in Edinburgh, so please go to visit at the Edinburgh Zoo. They have them, and so go visit the giant anteaters there. But we have, but there are giant anteaters in several collections, you know, in the UK. Mm-hmm. So to anybody, I know the Chester Zoo also has them. They're mm-hmm. one of our, our partners, and, and they also have them. So go, go enjoy them. However, in zoos, depending on because you know they they, they spend a lot of time inactive. Because that's one of their adaptations. Since they have low low metabolism, one of the tricks they use is that depending on the temperature, they modulate their activities. So you'll often find them sleeping um, in when you visit see them at the zoo. And one of the characteristics, you know, we say this big shaggy tail that they have. They actually use that as a blanket, and so they cover themselves. They kind of roll themselves in the ball. And they cover themselves with the with their shaggy tails. So sometimes when you see them in the zoo, it'll look they'll look like absolutely nothing, right? You'll just see a pile of hair. You you won't even understand what you're seeing. They are they're fantastic things. I think that's a brilliant introduction. And something that um you reminded me of when you were talking is I remember I think it was it was your organization tweeted um a picture of the giant anteater kind of carrying its its young on its on its back and yes, it was kind of what I didn't realize previously was the the stripes that they have on their sides kind of line up so that when the baby is on the back, it looks like it's just a really, really big anteater. In, but in fact, it's kind of the mother carrying the young, which is really, really interesting. I thought that was fantastic. Absolutely. Fantastic. It, it, they align absolutely perfectly because so the anteaters are usually dark colored, black or dark brown, but then they have this stripe right on, on the front part. And that really aligns with the baby. It's really, really amazing. Um, so when you see them, yeah, sometimes you can't tell that there's actually a baby on the mom's back. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the baby really holds on. So they, they, it's actually just like one individual. It's amazing. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the babies. Uh, we have this uh, right now. We have a, a post a postdoctoral student who's doing a study. Um, we have a long term field site. I, I guess I should talk about the whole project later, but. We have a long-term field site where we've been studying anteaters since 2017. And some of these females have been monitored so for the past four years. And Alessandra Bertassoni for the, started last year to study you know, parental care. And so she spends a lot of time looking at mother and pup behavior. They're absolutely great mothers. And, um, and so she's really looking at that. In our field site, usually pups start leaving their moms between five and a half and six months. But sometimes, you know, they even stay a little bit longer than that. Um, but, but it's really been interesting. And they're fantastic mothers. Where we work in the Cejado, it gets really hot. Sometimes, they, you know, she'll be sleeping and she'll just keep her tail up high to provide shade for the pup just to be playing right, right under the shade. There, it's, it's very, really, really cool. We have some great images of that. And if you look at our social media, often we share some of the materials that Alessandra has provided to us. Mm-hmm. It's yes, it's fantastic, and I would recommend everybody go and follow all of those accounts because they are fantastic, and they will always. It's whenever one pops up, it will always bring a smile to your your face. Um, I wondered 
just moving on, or kind of st- still in the same vein, we've kind of we touched briefly on the fact that they um, kind of eat ants and termites, um, and I imagine that kind of is a very important ecological role that they have, kind of controlling kind of pest populations or bugs or whatever. Um, is that kind of their main kind of ecological purpose? Is that the reason they're kind of really important, or is there other important ecological roles that they play? Well, I think it's mostly that, yes. They, they help to control um, these pests, which are ants, ants and termites. We, but, but, and, yeah, and I, 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 would, I would describe that as the main role. But, you know, of course, they, 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 um, they can be predated by large cats, so they are part, you know, of the, of the, of the food chain. And um, I do believe, you know, when, when, they, when they, they do create these excavations when they sleep, we haven't really studied that. But I do believe that those then can be used by, are used by other species. When they go to sleep, often they find a shaded place and they'll kind of dig a little pen, a little mud pen and everything. And that, and, 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 and that is also, so they create these little spots of sh- for that, that sometimes other species may use. But I would really describe that their main, main role is control of pests. That's yeah, that's really interesting because I remember when I was reading up about the pangolin, um, what feels like years ago now. Well, it is years ago now. I uh, reading about the pangolin for my dissertation, and it was I I came across I was reading a study about kind of pest control, and um, I I can't remember the name of the author, so but there was a a really interesting piece I read about how on different islands, if there was an anteater or anteaters present on the kind of islands in the in the kind of Amazon, then the islands that had the anteaters would have much different kind of plant life than the islands which did not because obviously they kind of have controlled the the populations and stopped the termites and the, the ants and things from oh, I, eating I, different I plants. I haven't read that. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah I'll need to find it because it's one of those things that when I read it, I was like, that's really interesting. And I didn't find a way to work it into my dissertation. But yeah, really, really interesting. I wondered kind of now that we know about them, I think the next kind of natural question is, what are they threatened by? These amazing animals, I think kind of iconic species, what are the types of things that are, are worrisome for this species? Yeah, so this our, the conservation work we do is a little bit different than with the giant armadillo. When we started with the giant armadillo, you know, nothing was known about their basic biology, ecology. We Really, a lot of information was lacking. But with the giant anteater, there have been previous studies and there is basic information on the animal. Also, just because since they are present in zoological collections, there is a lot of information about them. So that a lot of that information we did not have to really go out and seek. Um, anteaters ha- are, are threatened by, uh, you know, there are many of the same neotropical threats of all other species. So habitat loss, hunting, but mostly habitat loss, right? Um, but also, they're, they're, in the state where we live, roadkill, you know, they're, they're victims of wildlife vehicle collisions. Fires is also a threat. Because obviously you can see that with this big bushy tail that kind of drags, they're kind of like, you know, a, a walking match uh, because they can they can ignite. They, they can, well, they, so, so they're very sensitive to fires. Um, if they walk, they, they, they are one of the species that gets really impacted by, by, by fires. There's also a little bit of uh, problems with uh, negative superstitions with them. The human, so there are some, uh, there are, there are some difficult challenges with people having negative perceptions of the species and that has negative consequences. Also, we're looking at some conflict with uh, dogs, you know, domestic dogs, where domestic dogs would kind of chase them injure them and then you know the giant anteater uh, will always prefer flight over fight however they have these extremely powerful claws and so if really threatened they will defend themselves and so what they do is they kind of use these claws and they will kind of what we call they will kind of embrace the dog and grab and then their deep nails will dig into the dog and sometimes get stuck into the animal and that means that people that will quite want to so they can kill the dog, they can get uh, severely injured, and worst of all, people trying to interfere in the fight can get severely injured. So what are we doing as a conservation program? Well, we started out looking at the uh, looking at the, the threat of wildlife vehicle collisions, mm-hmm. um, that mainly in the Cerrado. We're also um, trying to mitigate the threat of fires in the Pantanal. We have done a lot of work looking at the human dimensions, so trying to understand people's superstitions 
so that we can design education programs and outreach and communication to address exactly those though the the kind of uh, facts that that repel people or might you know stimulate these these this these um these superstitions and fourth you know really working we're also starting to work um with dog owners and trying to create strategies to to decrease that so i think maybe i'll talk about all four of these these, these different <laughs> yes that would be fantastic actually because yeah there's i now have so many questions about each of them and it's probably best that i <laughs> that you kind of yeah whichever they, you'll know the best way to to explain each of them um because all that that yes i remember the thing that i was thinking about i about the fight or flight was i'd seen some the only kind of point i can relate to really is the um, I'd seen videos of not giant anteaters, but of Tamandua, uh-huh. where they kind of are running and then they turn and they yeah. kind of they stick their arms out like I I'll fight you if you come any closer, so back up yeah. that type yeah. of thing. Um, and, so yeah, and so the giant anteater will do something a little bit similar. They'll run, but they'll stop. Now they might not stand as much on their because t- the little Tamandua to people who don't know, they kind of think it's like. People often think they're, that what they're saying is, give, pick me up and give me a hug, but they're actually <laughs> defending themselves, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the giant anteater kind of does something similar. They'll run, but if threatened, they'll stop and raise, on, uh, raise up and then, you know, have these powerful claws that can really kill somebody or, or injure somebody very severely. That's that's it's one of those things. Yes, you do, these animals are lovely and perfectly peaceful, but be careful around them if they are looking a bit angry. Yes, absolutely. But these are animals that will choose flight over fight. But if cornered, they will fight and they can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. I guess um, kind of moving back then just a step to talk about the the solutions to the problems and the things that your organization have been doing i don't know that sounds like a lot so i don't know if you're the best if you have a, a set order you like to run through them or what yes what is the anteaters and highways project doing to kind of protect these these animals and help them well that's how it all kind of sort of began with the anteaters and highways and then it sort of went evolving as more staff came aboard and we have much more people now working with us but if you drive in the state where I live, Mato Grosso do Sul, you will be, you, you, you know, one of the things that is really going to strike you is the number of carcasses of animals that you found, find on the road. And in 2013, when I was only working with giant armadillos. That's one of the questions I had. Well, are giant armadillos also threatened by wildlife vehicle collisions? And so my wife and I, my wife works on the Lowland Taper Conservation Initiative. We joined forces and we started monitoring, I think it was 900 kilometers of road every two weeks for one year. And while we didn't find any giant armadillo carcasses, giant anteaters were the third most killed animal on our roads. And when you look at the ecology, biology of the giant anteater, which is one pop a year, you realize that how can they withstand this kind of massacre? And that's where the Anteaters and Highways project was born. So this project was really born to address a threat. And so we, we designed a multidisciplinary project um, thanks, to the, um, f- thanks to the four-year funding from Fondation Segre and then several zoo partners. We were able to develop this, this project that had several objectives, one of which was, of course, continuing these road surveys so we could understand the spatial and temporal dimensions of wildlife vehicle collisions and where, when, and why this was occurring. And so we monitored this time 1,300 kilometers of roads every two weeks. And in, in three years, we monitored 85,000 kilometers of, of highways, which represent about 15% of our paved highways. Uh, during that time, we documented uh, 608 carcasses of giant anteaters. Um, once again, they were high up there, not the third, but they were in the top five uh, animals killed. We also... Um, we we also looked at um, we we also conducted uh, uh, a telemetry study. So we 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 worked in three different study areas with highways uh, with different um, with, with different levels of traffic, high, medium, and low traffic, new highway, old highway, to kind of see how that influenced their movement. And so uh, we collared about I think it was yeah forty so forty five. Uh, individuals with GPS collars in three different sites. And so we could look at the movement, when and why they crossed the highways. 
So, so what we what that what that showed was that eighty percent of the crossings occur at night. In the areas where we worked, there were some underpasses, natural underpasses that were for cattle, for example, to use. So these big culverts used for cattle or bridges for rivers. And yet, despite having these safe passages, only 1% of the crossings were done using um, using uh, the safe passages. So that really indicated to us that we needed to guide the animals to use uh, passages. So that, so, you know, if you create underpasses as a mitigation strategy, if you don't add fencing to that to guide the animal, it would not be important. We also showed that when there was low traffic, animals would use both sides, but when there was high traffic, animals would usually pick a side of their highway to live on. However, eventually all the animals did cross. And so statistically, you would find animals crossing. Males had high, higher home ranges than females and had sort of this exploratory behavior. So males do cross more. So they have larger home ranges than females and they do cross more than females. And that is interesting because um, I'll talk about, we also, when we looked at, so males cross more than females. I'll, I'll stick to that for now. Um, one of the other results is that Anteaters do avoid the highways, and when we compared crossing rates of paved highways to natural obstacles such as streams or rivers, um, they crossed hi uh, paved highways eight times less. And what is interesting is when we when we, when we compare this to um, non-paved roads, which were also in our study areas, they crossed non-paved uh, roads four times more or as I used before the analogy, so four times less the, the paved highways. So they do really avoid the, the, the paved highways. However, they do cross it at more at night. And when compared to traffic, yes, there was less, there was less traffic at night. So when we plotted this, it looked perfect. Wow, anteaters know that, there, that there's less traffic. But it's actually, when we look at their activity patterns far away from the road, so it's it's it, the crossings actually only reflect their um their activity patterns not 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 traffic levels mm -hmm. um we did lose animals some of our study animals we had five study animals die um no actually I, I, actually I'm going to give the data from a little bit later but we had a total of eight die but six from the paved roads six of our paved road animals died and what that means is that Six animals died uh, using from doing to wildlife vehicle collisions, and only animals that live about two kilometers from the road cross. So that population of animals that is two kilometers from the road, those animals end up crossing. And if you look at the survival rate per year, animals that lived more than more than two kilometers far away from the road had ninety five percent survival rate. However, um, animals that lived close to roads had seventy eight percent survival rate. So you can see that there's about, you know, about living near roads has, you know, they, they die about 20% more. So there is a cost to living near roads. And so when we did a population viability analysis, we really showed that that uh, populations near roads decline fast. What we really show is that roads are sinks, ecological sinks, right? So, um, and, and that was very clear with our movement, both our movement ecology, um, with the data from uh, from using population viability analysis, what we really show is that if you look at the animals that are that live um, two kilometers from the road, they and they have the, the, their viability in the long term is just a decreasing population. So, what we basically have is animals that are living near roads, eventually dying, and animals from far away replacing those. So it's really a source sink dynamic, and that was pretty clear. Um, our data really indicated that. Um, overall, so two males die for every females, which kind of helps because they're they're a polygynous species. So that is one of the reasons why, uh, you know, if, if it was as many males as females, the, the the population viability would be even worse. So it kind of helps that it's more males than females. Um, and so it's, yeah, so so that so that movement ecology was really really important. Coupled to the study that we did with um, with 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 roadkill with with, with roadkill, um, what was really interesting also was that, um, and now I'm talking about so the because the, the telemetry study we're continuing it up to now. At the moment, I have thirty animals that are collared that we're following. 
when we're talking about roadkill, um, six of the animals um, that we monitor died on the paved road. Six. Mm-hmm. However, of these animals, only three of these carcasses, because they have GPS collars, right? Only three of the carcasses were found actually on the road and three died up to 600 meters far away, which means there was a vehicle collision and they kind of dragged themselves away. Mm-hmm. And so what this means is that the number of animals that we we monitored and we see, and you're really impressed by um, the rates that we found was 19 animals every 100 kilometers. When we just count carcasses, for every 100 kilometer of paved highway in Mato Grosso do Sul, 19 giant anteaters die per year. However, that is not the real number. Um, when you look at the telemetry study, the telemetry study indicates that we lose that only only we're only able to count half of those, right? Because the two animals with collar, three of them were visible on the road, but you know others dragged themselves away. And when you're monitoring on the road, you can only see the carcasses that are on or really really near the road because then there's grass and they simply disappear. We conducted what we call a persistence study. So remember, I said the monitoring was done every two every every um, every two weeks. And we looked at what happens to a giant armadillo carcass, giant anteater carcass, I did it, to a giant anteater carcass. And we found out that sometimes they disappear. They can be, um, you know, uh, feral dogs or other predators can kind of drag them away. And actually 25% of the carcasses that are on the road disappear between monitoring. So when we're monitoring carcasses every two weeks, we miss some carcasses that had died on the road because they're removed, Right. So, but so if we factor in the carcasses that are that we do not count simply because of our monitoring method, which is every two weeks, plus the animals that we don't count because they don't die on the road according to our our telemetry data, um, right? That there's you know fifty percent that disappear. Well, instead of nineteen animals per one hundred kilometer, the real number is actually forty eight animals every one hundred kilometer. That's in, that's is, and it's not that's not sustainable. That's re- like a huge number of that's a huge like, yeah. yeah, and that yeah that's because and when you first started talking about it and when I was first looking into it, I thought anteaters are huge. There's no way there's that many can be because you'd you'd see one, but at night if they're active at night and all of these things they add up and they come together and it just seems that's it's it's I. I yeah. I, so the, the I, I well, guess. the problem is you think they're huge, but most of the accidents happen at night, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and the anteater's eyes do not reflect light. They have that they're that, so it's very different from a deer or a cat, which reflect mm-hmm. light. The anteaters don't do that. So it's basically a shadow that you don't realize. We also did so a study on truck drivers working with with those. Um, on our state, everything is done through trucks, right? The transport and we have Mato Grosso is huge. And so we try to look at uh, um, the people's, you know, truck drivers' perception of, of this issue. Um, there was actually because due to superstition, because there's a lot, I mentioned that, there's a lot of negative perceptions about giant dancers. People say they bring bad luck. And we and it was said that truck drivers killed them on purpose because there's a saying that if a giant anteater crosses in front of you, you're going to have bad luck. So people said they might kill them on purpose. But when we did interviews and we interviewed over 200 it was the doctoral research of Mariana Catapani, who actually works with us today on human dimensions of conservation. Um, she 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 really proved that truck drivers, you know, they even the ones that through. So she used techniques of anthropology, psychology, and she really showed that truck drivers are very aware of the threat of wildlife vehicle collisions. Even those that love animals and are very upset um, end up killing them because it's much more dangerous for truck drivers to swerve or avoid them so it's much safer for them to hit them um and so and they also report that most of the accidents with wildlife vehicle collisions occur at night so bringing those two pieces of data we we we, we really we really confirmed that um other studies we did was looking at health so we 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 did necropsies on fresh carcasses of over you know over 150 necropsies of over 60 of were of giant anteaters, and that's where we had we developed over 50 partnerships with universities and you know to, to analyze the carcasses and look at the health of giant anteaters. Um, 
We also did some camera trapping on two different, the, one of the busiest highways and less busy, you know, with a gradient of cameras close and far from road, which basically replicate, which really confirmed. Once again, we often triangulate with our, with our, this was a PhD student, Vinicius Aberisi, he's going to defend in a few months. Uh, and his data basically showed the same thing. After the, the, uh, there's a, the uh, the uh, relative abundance of giant anteaters, for example, is lower near the road than far. And and we looked at you know occupancy. He's going to do all this stuff for his PhD, but he's going to look at other species. So that data also confirmed. We also did capacity building of, of uh, road workers. We also did a lot of environmental education work. Basically, so all this work done in the, for during four years was to prepare the scene so we had the data, so that the second phase of the project was started in 2020. We would be really working on um, mitigation strategies, so we had that information, um, and so that's what we're really doing. And so we have a whole new team of uh, you know six full-time staff that's now working on that, and um, really doing already having some exciting results already. Once we have this data, we can now present it to the state or authorities. And Erika Saito, has, who's working with us, she's one of the she's one of the members of our staff. We we have been really working, you know, presenting all this data to 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 the state authorities. And you have to remember that we were documented and focused on anteaters and understanding the problem, but we collected data on all other species. What we want to look at is turning our highways safe, because you know wildlife vehicle collisions are not only a problem for biodiversity. They're also a huge problem for human safety. People die on our roads. And so when we say that, you know, it's not, you know, the carcasses show us that it's 19 per 100 kilometers. But then when we really analyze the data, taking into account persistence and, and telemetry data, it's 48. Well, that's 48 accidents that happen on the road. So people hitting animals. So, and even a giant anteater that they, they, when, they, when they hit the car, they cause material damage. They also cause life. And that's the same thing for the capybaras and tapers. And we did a study, well, Fernando Asenso, one of our colleagues, who showed that in, you know, and, and with this new data on persistence, in less than 10 years, you can reimburse mitigation strategies, which is fencing. So if we start fencing in, in the key hotspots, the, the passages that already exist, we can, you know, that, that, that it's actually cost effective. And so those are the kind of data that we presented to us the state. And now, um, just very well, so we created this uh, mitigation guidelines, this, uh, this manual of all the mitigation measures that needed to be used depending on the landscape, on the, on the different conditions. And we're really excited that um, the state of Matrususu has adopted that. Actually, so very recently, um, it was endorsed in December 2021, just two months ago. And so that mitigation measures need to be implemented um, in any high, new highway that is being paved or any highway that's being duplicated or fixed because they don't have the money right now to implement, to put in all these mitigation measures. But what the state is doing is that when they'll hire contracts, they will work that in the budget because we've really been able to show with all our different partners, working with lots of different NGOs. And so that has been really exciting. Yuri Ribeiro, one of the new members of staff that works with us, has been using all this data to model. So we've modeled, you know, only... Um, we have data for only 15% of the paved highways. We'll use that data to try to use uh, distribution models and adapted it to road kill. And he actually shows the state, he created a map for the state of all the areas where there was a higher percentage of probability of wildlife vehicle collisions. And so we're using that data now to influence the conversation. He's also doing uh, research on trying to understand what are the barriers to implementation. So why is it we can't implement it? What are the barriers so we can fix it? So looking at, you know, how all the different authorities and people work together. Um, we are working now, we're, we're doing a citizen science experiment. Mariana is doing this experiment, working with truck drivers to try to do citizen science. So we created an app where truck drivers record capybara, uh, anteaters, and tapers so that they can help be part of the solution and recording. And then we're integrating Yuri's data into that so they get a warning um, in the app saying, oh, you're going to a high a collision zone. Um, we're, oh, so, um, we're continuing the capacity building. We are continuing our long-term research on the on giant anteaters. We are, we're trying to create, we're, in, in the next few, we want to create a certification system with the state so that... Um, Highways are categorized as safe or unsafe 
for wildlife vehicle collisions. So based on the manual and the guidelines, those highways that have been implemented, we can say the ones that are dangerous or not dangerous, and we continue our work with um, environmental education. So lots of different things. That's why I'm saying our staff really increased. Um, we continue. We're also doing some work with the reintroduction of orphan giant anteaters. We've been doing that for the last three years. They just had two members of staff. We're releasing in the next few days two new animals. Um, so, uh, And we use these animals for uh, communication and conservation stories. The 30 animals that we monitor now, we continue looking at the influence of, of collisions, but in, um, um, but also habitat loss and, and other things. So, so, you know, the story is huge. It's become really big. Um, we're using, we're, so I remember I told you we, we're looking at female reproduction because that's one of the data we really need for, for, for our population viability models. But we also collar the young when they disperse, and we're using the dispersers as landscape detectives so we can understand the permeability in the habitat so that we can work with the authorities to try to protect those corridors, um, know w- what is permeable or impermeable to, to giant anteaters. So the project has really become really, really uh, big. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how it, it, I mean, it didn't start small because trying to work out all of these kind of different factors that affect roads is very in itself challenging, but seeing how it then grows off and all of these different arms and legs and kind of, oh, we can do this with this data and we can affect this. And it's really clever and really kind of exciting and interesting. Um, It must be like, you must have very different days every day. Like it, you must wake up and go, I have no idea what's going to come but through <laughs> for me to do today. Yeah, but, 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 but so now, you know, we, we talked about, about life and my, my, when I started, you know, I, I would do, you know, I started camera trapping in the Pantanal with, with giant armadillos. But now I, I you know, I, I, I work more coordinating the team. I was in the team uh, in the field mm-hmm. last week to put a collar on the giant anteater, but I also have different partners and everybody in the team can do that. So, um, mm-hmm. We were talking about the mitigation manual that we developed. That was done by Erika Saito. And she worked with all the roadkill specialists in Brazil to create that manual, along with different NGOs and partners. All the modeling is done by Yuri Ribeiro. Um, the work we do with the, um, the Citizen Science app is done by Mariana Catapani. So she's, she's uh, applying that. So she's responsible for that. Mm-hmm. We also do, so the long-term studies, Débora Yogi and Miriam Costa, they're responsible for doing, for, for doing um, that part. Andrea is, is, is doing, um, the, the, according to the, uh, the education, Guto and Audrey are working on the communication. So actually we have, I don't, um, I learn much more than, than I do, right? Because I have all these people that are really, Good, good, good at what they do, and Juliana and Victor are responsible. Are doing the um, are more more responsible for the release and monitoring of the orphans. So actually, you know, actually, I I I, I guess yeah. So I'm, I'm I, I I learn every day from from these different people I work with. They're they're the experts, and um, Mari also does the work on the uh, the the dog the conflict with the dogs. So looking at she's just she's doing well actually it's all the projects so juliana works with the reintroduction um we, we've already lost we've had problems with two or three of our anteaters that were attacked by dogs and we're trying to build a corridor to a state park and so we're working with all the landowners there and so we did this big event where we castrate their pets dogs and cats and at the same time mariana has been inviting them in a participatory um program to try to find solutions try to understand what is the role of the dog in the ranch and and how can we how can we avoid this conflict? So working in a really participatory way. So it's re- that's really exciting because people think that their dogs are protecting their property. That seems to be one of the main role. They have dogs to protect, mm-hmm. but it turns out dogs are not protecting because they actually spend the night, you know, traveling really far away. So they're not running, doing their job. So they're, you know, they're entering in conflict with wildlife when they should be at home, you know, doing their job as protecting. So how can we bring them back? So maybe having more feeding feeding times and so we're bringing behavioralists and everything. So we're trying to look at in a friendly, dog-friendly welfare perspective and per- people welfare and wildlife perspective. That's what Mari's job is. So she's our specialist in human uh, wildlife conflict. She's sponsored actually by the Chester Zoo who's uh, sponsoring her, her salary. Um, and so so they're doing that wonderful job um, because, you know, you don't want to tell people, oh, tie up your dog. That's not well, good welfare for the dog. So 
looking at all these things. So the project has become quite huge. Um, last but not least, in the Pantanal, even though it's giant armadillos, we're working, I think I mentioned that last time, we're creating fire uh, community fire brigades. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what last time I talked to you if we had run the training and everything, but it was really successful. And we were able to mm-hmm. have uh, seven different ranches. So, so protecting 1,000 square kilometers in, around our study area, um, yeah. where now they're equipped and trained. Everybody who lives on the ranch is equipped and trained to work together and fight these fires. And we were able to prevent some wildfires last year. And that training will continue this year. So so even though that was for giant armadillos, it also helps protect the giant anteaters. And that's an experience that we hope to develop and share with other people throughout the Pantanal, but also expand. So this year we're going to expand the training to more neighbors, retrain the people who who were there. So I think I touched upon, uh, uh, you know, the education. The, the human wildlife conflict, the fires. I think just the superstitions throughout all the work we do, we always work with local communities and so we conduct interviews and so we understand, you know, the color of the animal. I think we believe that one of the factors is the color, black, uh, shaggy tail kind of brings these, ne- has, brings these negative perceptions. Also, people are very troubled by the fact that you can't tell male and females to... Um, there's no sexual dimorphism. Um, the genitalia is quite similar um, between them. Uh, actually, we have to when we capture them, we never know if it's a male or female. You have to kind of manipulate them and to see if it's a male or female. And that really bothers people. People think that they're hermaphrodites, that they breed by sticking their noses in each other. There's all these crazy stories. So there's a lot of misunderstanding, which means that there's a lot of opportunities for communication and education to talk about this species. And dispel these myths, right, about their reproduction, about um, sometimes people, the fact that their back paw, when they, the print looks like a child, that sometimes also scares people. So we actually we actually created, wrote a book on the incredible giant anteater um, and have all this education program, communication program, where we can really dispel these myths and these misunderstandings about the species. That's fascinating. That's, it's the same as the giant armadillo last time. I remember I asked questions and I was like, how, like, <laughs> there's so much going on and it's so interesting, so fascinating um, and so important. And I think, yes, talking to people and breaking this, these myths, so important. And it's something else that's really shone through throughout all of the different solutions is it doesn't just impact the anteater, yes. it impacts everything else. And I think that's so important and so fascinating that there, it's kind of using this maybe one species as the kind of case study but in doing so you are going to impact the tapir and the armadillo and all of these other things with the firefighting and all that it's it's really fascinating and interesting um and yes it's it's gone from yes an anteater to half of the it seems like a lot of different species which is fascinating and and really really well and i think what what our pro what our program really our project really shows is, is it's so multidisciplinary right um, at the moment, you know, only two of our staff are really the, the ones going into the field to, to capture kind of like what people see traditionally. Um, but we have lots mm-hmm. of students involved, a lot of social science, um, a lot of policy uh, occurring, a lot of modeling occurring. So all these different specialties. And I think it really helps that w- and communication. You mentioned that our mm-hmm. social media, but now we, we, have, we actually hired now, uh, two communicators to help us in this work. Because communication is so important. And that's not something that we're always great at doing. So we really need the science to try to understand what we need to communicate. We need to use, so, you know, for example, the superstition, use the science to conduct the interviews and see what exactly is it that bothers people with giant anteaters. And once we have that information, find ways of communicating that in a pleasant way that's really understandable, that can really cause effective change. And always now... Something we might not have been doing enough is always evaluating what we're doing. So now we have, you know, mm-hmm. people that are really capable of always evaluating the data and what it is we have so that we can make sure that we're always moving in the right direction. Mm-hmm. For example, I said that our data showed that giant anteaters cross mostly at night. And then um, our, our interviews with the truck drivers show that most accidents happen at night. So you would think that one of the, the one of the things that we behavioral changes that we should be targeting is decreasing um, 
decreasing driving at night. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that, so that makes perfect sense when you look at the data. And, but then you have to look at the different stakeholders that actually use the roads and are involved in accidents. And, it, and yes, for, small, for, for personal reasons and cars, people can change their schedules. But for example, when you talk to tr- truck drivers and we, ran, we did some interviews with truck drivers to see that was one of our objectives with working with the truck drivers um, was to change the, their habits of drive, maybe decrease nocturnal driving. Well, you realize that for one, they are not always, they are most often, they are not um, responsible for the, the times that they could drive. It depends on, on other factors when, when they should be shipping. So they do not have control over that. Um, also, because it's cooler, it, 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 the, 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 the tires don't, don't get, get wasted as fast. There are lots of different reasons why they don't have control or it's much more difficult for them to change. So instead of doing a whole program on decreased nocturnal driving, it does work for people and for, 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 for certain uh, cars, for, for yep. personal, but, but not for truck drivers. So before you implement a program, it's always important to get to know your stakeholders. And so do the science so that you understand you don't waste money. And so that's what we found out that it was not. So how can we decrease wildlife vehicle collisions with truck drivers? We hope that this app, we're going we're gonna to do this experiment for one year, which indicates exactly where the most dangerous parts are, will help them mm-hmm. um, be a little bit more careful. But also, you know, by registering um, carcasses and, and presence of anteaters, capybaras, and tapers, they will feel more involved. They will feel more involved with that. So, so it's actually looking at a congest- so lots of different solution, but always, always, always evaluating, right? So we're evaluating every every mitigation strategy. At the moment, right now, I have a team that's evaluating um, uh, wildlife warning signs, which is one of the cheapest methods, right, that everybody uses. Mm-hmm. So, does it really is is that effective, um, or is it part of the or people so used to seeing them that they're a part? Um, so we're, we're conducting both interviews, measuring vehicle speed and doing all this work on that right now so we can see if that's something to recommend. We're also building individual mitigation plans for each highway because each highway is different. Um, so it's lots of different strategies that needs. So that's why, as you can see now, it's really more than, you know, um, this is really a huge team effort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yes, I like the idea of being self-critical and self-reflective and kind of turning back because that's always the most important thing. And that's usually when it's only, yeah, it sometimes takes that kind of, hang on, let's really think about this to have your best ideas and have the big breakthroughs because you realize the first way you've done it maybe has a small flaw or needs to be twisted. Yeah. I also like the fact when you mentioned kind of um, bringing other people in that was really in- making sure they feel included is really interesting and kind of yeah I, it gives me so- giving me something to think about about how to engage people and make sure that if they feel included they might start to kind of form a bond with these animals as well which might in turn kind of help reduce accident and make them want to drive more carefully not just because they're n- not going to damage the truck or whatever it is but also because they kind of are starting to care about the animals that are on the roads and things so that's really interesting and, and you know jack there's something that's really interesting is when you talk about these these different stakeholders in this case truck mm-hmm. drivers people people often feel invisible and not heard and that's a huge problem in con- often in conservation that even though they're the stakeholder that's most involved in the issue, they often feel that their voice is not heard, that they are just invisible and that people are either pointing fingers at them. Truck drivers are responsible for wildlife vehicle collisions, but but they don't feel like they're being involved in the solution. So that's why the whole citizen science experiment we're doing, it's actually called, we call the, the project called Highway Heroes. So that the people involved in the project, the truck drivers, become the heroes of the highway because they're um, collecting data, they're they're trying to save species, and we're working and integrating, sharing this data. So it's it's a great experiment where it's really yep the highway hero. So it's really giving people a voice and and getting celebrating how they are getting involved in conservation, and and I think that's this disconnect we have sometimes between you know, the conservationist and the stakeholders, the people most impacted mm-hmm. is, 
is, is a huge problem in conservation. I think everybody you've talked to as a conservationist is probably mentioning that. Mm-hmm. It's something that comes up a lot, isn't it? Like we're, especially if it's organizations going into communities that they aren't necessarily a part of, if it's a British charity going into a, somewhere abroad, all of these kind of different relationships and dynamics that, that play in and making sure that actually the people who are the most affected are the ones who are feeding in and providing and kind of, because yes, they'll know the issue probably better than most other kind of stakeholders so that's yeah really really important and really really interesting um, and, and share and, data yeah. so sharing the data you know that's why you often need communicators to make sure that we can share you know with graphics infograph or something that's you know that people can really um understand and, and so ways of ways of pr- explaining things yeah that's that's why i you know that's why you can really see that we have become such a big team right because we need so much different expertise. And so our team is, you know, is everybody works together. I, I, I dropped, you know, I said a lot of names, of, but that's just like the kind of the focal point for that objective. But kind of everybody kind of uh, talks together and everybody helps each other and brings their different perspective. And we're always, of course, very critical of what we do. Once again, all of the work depends on our partners and, and the, the feedback from our partners. I had just mentioned, you know, Mari being sponsored by the Chester Zoo. Well, she's also very much in connection, connected to the Chester Zoo through this fellowship, and she gets a lot of the feedback and information um, that the Chester Zoo has gathered with their programs around the world. So that feeds in. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one, one of their, um, Hannah Brooks, one of their educators is actually, at the moment, they, they, uh, due to COVID, we're supposed to have a, pre- a workshop, but she's doing a virtual workshop so, so we can, re, re, you know, uh, uh, update our education and communication plan. And so, you know, all the work we do, Jack, um, it's, it's really through lots of, of partners. Um, and, and, I, and I think you really have that conservation is really about a group effort. I think sometimes we tend to simplify, and I know in these podcasts and these places, you need to have a kind of figurehead for the project. And people kind of end up mm-hmm. thinking of these heroes with the conservation heroes. But conservation here, I, I want to really insist that th- it it doesn't exist. That concept is so flawed because we don't do anything alone. So um, mm-hmm. I certainly consider myself as part of a really amazing group of people uh, doing work. And when I say group of people, it's, you know, um, people here in Brazil, but also the international partners that finance our work or that provide us the capacity building, this huge group is what does the work it's so it's so it's really this it's a huge group effort Mm -hmm. i think that that's really important and nice that you to acknowledge because it's yeah it's one of those things that i sometimes think when people ask me about the podcast for example it's kind of like oh um you must do all this work by yourself and all that and all that and i think i mean i write down questions but without (laughs) and talk to people but like yes without kind of the uh, technical advice of some friends or kind of talking the people I'm actually talking to the guests or without all these other people coming together and helping there wouldn't be on my end the podcast and with all the people on your end kind of there wouldn't be the project coming together as it has with so many different avenues so that's a really nice thing to to an important thing to acknowledge I think um yes it's really really interesting no really really important absolutely mm-hmm. um and and when you say, you know, every day is a new experience, but it really is because with, with, with the amazing people I work with, I learn every day. I learn something new. It's really, really exciting. Mm-hmm. It, it must be. Yeah. And especially with so many disciplines and things coming in, it must be fantastic. Um, and thank you so, so much. That was absolutely fascinating. And I think really, really enlightening to the struggle of the giant anteater um, and illuminating to lots of things I didn't know about. I guess now, though, I want to move on and talk about your other project, if you do not mind. Um, We talked about it last year, but I guess, and there's so many similarities between the projects and the overlaps and so much going on. But if we refocus slightly and talk about the the giant armadillo conservation project, I wondered, could you update us on on what's been going on there since this time last year when we spoke? Um, Any updates on that front? Well, I think the giant armadillo update compared to last time we spoke, I sort of talked about it, was which was the fire brigade, the community fire brigade that we created, want to continue expanding for the next years. 
we found that to be a really efficient way of not only involving the community, um, but 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 of 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 you know really putting the question and threat of fires at the forefront of of everybody's mind, and so really working together. Um, and once again, uh, when we had those big fires in 2020, the landowners felt that they were being not only exploited, but, but ignored because there was all this international uproar. The fingers were sometimes pointed at them for causing the fires. And so by doing this community fire brigade, we were really able to work all together. And it was fun. To, I was, you know, got all dressed up in all the, you know, in all the protective gear. And I'll never forget turning out, you know, where we had these uh, practical, uh, practical course. And I had on my right, like this big landowner, and to my left, I had a, a simple cowboy. So we had a cowboy, a conservationist, and a landowner. Everybody working together. It was absolutely wonderful. And we're going to repeat and continue that experience. Um, in the in the Atlantic Forest, the project has really grown from strength to strength. We have convened in December um, all the conservation projects working there uh, in a participatory meeting, so we can meet get to know each other, share data, but also make sure that we could provide data to the park. So the park was, was you know, was present and they found that we understood what their needs was. Mm-hmm. So that was fun because there was, you know, we had a, a Jaguar project. We have a woolly monkey project. We have us, a primate project for another species of primate. And we had this project for a tiny little species of songbird that was ext- that had been extinct in the state for the last 70 years and 11 individuals had just been found and so working all together we were able to try to find how we can strengthen uh, the park because the park is facing a lot of different threats especially encroachment so how can we help together shape public uh, public policies and i think one of the exciting things so it has not started but as an update for the giant armadillos is we're this year we're expanding the project to the cerrado um, where we're going to try to create a new concept of integrated management areas for giant armadillos. So remember, I think I probably talked about how we found that the fragments, there are only 69 fragments that are over 25 square kilometers that are left for giant armadillos. We're now working with the experts at the University of Florida, um, uh, a multinational uh, cellulose company, another Brazilian NGO. All together, we're trying to work how we can, we can try to connect these fragments and try to increase the viability for giant armadillos. So that's pretty exciting. And of course, um, I think in maybe next week or the week after, we're going to be producing our first, we're going to have our first giant armadillo-friendly honey for sale. We have now certified 29, as of yesterday, 29 beekeepers have been certified, but the first bottles of honey with the certificate should come out uh, I think, you know, very, very soon, the next few days, next few weeks. So that's really exciting. So lots of great stuff happening on the giant armadillo fronts. That is fantastic. Because I remember like all of these projects a year ago when we spoke, kind of, you were talking about, oh, we're going to try and get these people certified and we're going to try and set up the kind of firefighting type thing or we're just starting to set it up. So it's really nice to hear it all come together and actually see results and see like, oh, the honey's coming out. Yeah. And, and so what, what we hired a beekeeper, we actually have a beekeeper who is doing this job, who is certifying people part-time. So he actually has his own apiary and he works part-time certifying beekeepers. So he knows the community, he understands them. So he's really this great, creating this great bridge. I work with him every day. A lot of it is virtually, but so we can create all these. So he's really great. So that's really helped the project a lot. So once again, getting that different expertise, not me. I mean, I'm super biased for our giant armadillos, right? I, uh, I really need it. So he's great because he brings this, he's a beekeeper. So he knows how to talk to people and everything. So that's working out really, really great. Once again, it's a, it's a huge team effort. Yeah. Yeah. And the honey will taste even sweeter now that it is perfectly ethically done yes, and safely yes, done. Yes, and yes, fantastic. Yes. That's brilliant. Actually, that's really, really brilliant. Um, and yes, it's good to hear that there's progress on, on that front as well. And, Yes, I mean, I guess everything we've talked to is progress for all of the different species that kind of you can imagine. Like, it's yeah, it's amazing how it all links together and it's fantastic. Um, yes. And the listeners probably can't see, but I've just sat, been sat here smiling for an, <laughs> an hour being like, this is really, yeah, really interesting to hear about. And so, yes, nice to hear about the armadillos, because I think that was one of my... Um, 
not to upset any of my other guests from season two, but that was one of my favorite guests, one of my favorite uh, interviews and one of my favorite species that I learned about. Um, and I think it was popular with the listeners as well. It was one of the most listened to episodes. So nice to hear about them and all sorts of stuff. Oh, well, that's wonderful to hear about. I hope they'll continue. And I hope we'll, you'll continuing giving me this opportunity to talk about our work every year so that we can keep updating everybody. That'd be wonderful. I should, I actually, yeah, we should start booking in a year in advance. But okay, this time next year, we'll find another project because, or there'll be even more updates by this time next year, probably. Um, All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I want to be invited <laughs> next year to give an update on both programs. We'll have lots of exciting updates for sure. Mm, that's fantastic. And I guess like I haven't had to do much speaking today, which has been very nice because you <laughs> there's so much information. Um but that that kind of brings us towards the end of the questions I had for um for today. Um I guess the the last couple of questions I always ask people always the same are how can people be helping and and how can they find out more? So I guess if we start with how can if someone's listening to this at home and thought I need to do something um, about anteaters or armadillos, because we briefly mentioned them, what can they do um, to help um, your work and, and the work of the huge team that goes on, that is going on around you? Well, if, if you know, um, our projects we were, we have is from an NGO, so we always need funding. So if you're interested in collaborating with a project, please get in touch. Just last week, actually, we had somebody from um, the UK who's an artist who's really interested in the species. She organized this class a virtual class online of drawing anteaters and was able to, you know, to fundraise in that way for the project. So that was really, really, really wonderful. But, you know, please get to learn, you know, get to learn more about the project. I, I always want to mention, I think I mentioned it last time, that if you, if to the, I want to encourage listeners to support their local zoo um, because most of the funding, 80% of the giant armadillo project and and 40% of the anteater project has been funded by zoos. Um, and zoos are sponsoring our, the salaries. Um, my, my salary is sponsored by the Royal Logical Society of Scotland, which owns the Edinburgh Zoo and Highland Wildlife Park. Mari, as I said, Chester Zoo, Gabrielle Houston Zoo, uh, Danilo is Naples Zoo, uh, our educator Andrea is the Reed Park Zoo. Uh, um, so go sponsor your local zoo. Um, and I know that there's a lot of debate about animal welfare and mm. or animals well care. But if you're visiting an AZA or EAZA accredited institution, mm. believe me, welfare is at the forefront of these institutions. And I just want to, if there are any animal activists listening to me right now, did you please listen to what I have just mentioned? That on our roads in Mato Grosso do Sul, we, our data shows that 48 animals are killed every 100 kilometer each year. Anteaters, animals are being massacred on our roads. That we're just talking about giant anteaters, but lots of other species. And, and thanks to the funding from zoos, we're really working hard. We've, we're changing public policy and doing a lot of things. So while, you, while animal activists sometimes freak out about one individual in a zoo, I want to encourage them, go into the wild and see what is happening to biodiversity around the world and, 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 and try to rethink a little bit about the priorities and how you can be more effective for conservation and, and think sometimes populations more than individuals. That's really, really interesting. And yes, I'll just piggyback on top of what you were saying about Edinburgh Zoo and the anteaters and things that they have there. Um, they've just opened a new armadillos and sloths house. So if you are yes. in the Edinburgh in area, um, Edinburgh adjacent, go and see it because it's fantastic because you have the nice, it's, it's good because you have the nice kind of chill sloths in the in the trees. And then on the ground, you have all these armadillos running around, which is very nice to see. Um so yes, a brilliant bits of advice. Um, and it's an always. inside enclosure. So if it's cold, you can visit. <laughs> Even if it's rainy, if it's a rainy, you can go visit the Edinburgh Zoo. There's lots of, there's lots of indoors act activities. Mm -hmm. It's every time I've walked inside, my glasses. I'm blind because my glasses have just beamed <laughs> up instantly. Because yeah. I feel like it's so it's cold. Nice and warm, yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, but yes, that's fantastic. Thank you. Um, oh, I guess almost forgot where um if people want to learn more uh, about any of this any of the things that we've talked about um where should they go and what should they do um yes if they're interested in kind of following your work and the updates and things yeah so please i think we, so thanks to our communities our websites have really um been more developed so it's the I, icas 
Yeah, icasconservation.org.br. I-C-A-S conservation.org.br and you can learn more about our project. Uh, if you're interested to come visit us in the Pantanal, you can with the because one of the ranches where we work has an eco-lodge so you can get to meet a lot of the project staff. Um, we're also based in Campo Grande, so if you ever come visit Brazil, um, you know, drop us a line and we'll be happy to, to meet with you personally. Um, but yeah, and I think and lots of the institutions support that support us also have information about the project. Fantastic. And yes, I, I will. I, I know um, every time I have a guest on somewhere around the world and they say like, oh, you can come and see that. I'm like, I now need to buy tickets to Namibia, to Madagascar, and then across to, <laughs> to Brazil. I'm buying plane tickets all over the world. Um, but yes. Uh... <laughs> but if, if, if people are if people want to organize events, sometimes we have done Zoom calls. If they do fundraisers, sometimes a member of staff, usually myself, will talk. Um, and you can, you know, now with Zoom, one of the adventures of the pandemic has really taught us to use these tools. So mm-hmm. we do a lot of virtual talks for schools and, um, and and for, you know, interest groups and things like that. We have done that. And that's been really successful. A way to, of course, not everybody can travel. And so having the opportunity to meet, you know, virtually and talk virtually about all these issues is another way of doing this. Mm. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Um, and yes, I'll put links in the description of this episode for the website, for all of the social media, for everything we've talked about. I'll try and find all the links and I'll pop them down in the description. So if you're listening to this and think, oh, I want to kind of quickly have a look and see what's going on, um, they'll all be in there for you. Um, I guess with that being said, though, that brings us to the end. So thank you once again, Arno, so much for your time and insights. It, it's always easy talking to you because I have to, I, I could just write one or two questions and you have so much to say <laughs> that I could, I don't even need to be here. So it's fantastic. It's fun, but it's fantastic to listen to um, because it's, it's so interesting and yes, incredible to hear um, about all the different work. So thank you so, so much for, for yes, for being here and, and telling us all about it. Well, thank you for having me, Jack. And now I expect an invitation next year to give you updates. <laughs> yep, of, of course. Um, well, thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you to everyone who is listening. Um, if you've enjoyed the podcast, uh, you can make sure, and as I say, follow um, all of Arno's work and all of the kind of Ant Eaters and Highways, ICAS, uh, Giant Armadillo work by going down to the description of this episode, finding all the links. I'll also put the links down there for our social media. So we're at Pangolin Podcast on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all over the place. So make sure and check those out. And also make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on other things that are coming up. I think this is going to be the first episode of our new season. So yes, uh, we have all sorts of stuff coming up. I've recorded two other episodes already. One with Lizzie from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland talking about integrating technology with conservation. And we also have one with the Director of Conservation Optimism coming up. So all sorts of interesting stuff. So make sure to subscribe. Um, And yes, thank you um, all so much for listening. I guess, yes, until next time, thank you, Arno. Thank you, listeners, and goodbye. Thank you so much, Jack. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks. (laughs)